Welcome back to another episode of Making Sense of Money. I'm Nikki Jankola-Shanks. Last episode, we talked about credit scores and credit reports, an important topic that affects everyone. So if you haven't listened already, make sure you go back and check that episode out as well. And I'm Andrew Pellegrini, your other co-host. Along with the podcast that we did last time, we also talked about a special free webinar on credit called Conscious Credit that we do with the Get Savvy, Grow Your Green Stuff webinar series. If you missed it live, that's okay. You can still observe it, view it on the University of Illinois Student Money Management Center's YouTube channel. It's IL Student Money or on our website at studentmoney.uillinois.edu. And I'm Jake Hamilton your other other co-host. This week is International Fraud Awareness Week, actually, and that's what we're going to be talking about this week. So what is that? Fraud Awareness Week was established in 2000 by the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. Uh, It's a worldwide effort, so it goes on all across the globe. And what it does is it encourages business leaders and employees to proactively identify fraud and take steps to prevent it. We're going to talk about a lot of this stuff, but if you want any more info on it, uh, you can go to fraudweek.com. Throughout this podcast, we're going to talk about a lot of facts and statistics. And these facts and statistics that we have pulled are mainly from the FTC website. So what is the FTC? The FTC stands for the Federal Trade Commission. It is a federal agency, and it has a dual purpose. One, protecting consumers, and two, promoting competition. They aim to stop unfair, deceptive, and fraudulent practices found in the marketplace. So this could be anything from the scams that we're going to talk about here to even larger things like security breaches, things like that. You could also file complaints of fraud directly on their website, and they conduct a lot of research to get to guide different policy aspects that has to do with fraud and promoting competition, which is in the free marketplace, things that, that could help spur, help businesses, etc. So let's start out by defining fraud. The Oxford Dictionary definition of fraud is the wrongful or criminal deception intended to result in financial or personal gain. Identity theft, which we talked about before on this podcast, is a specific kind of result from fraud, typically. It can take many forms. Some we've mentioned before, talked about on the podcast before, just like identity theft, like phishing, for instance. Other specific forms of fraud or scams can include insurance claims, mortgage fraud, tax evasion, embezzlement, bribery, Ponzi schemes. Unemployment fraud has been on the rise this year, for instance. A couple of the saddest types of scams, in my opinion, are the grandparent scams or the love scams. Those are really sad. What's a grandparent scam? It's when someone emails you pretending to be your grandparent asking for money. That so sad. sad. That's pretty Or sad. the opposite happens where it's someone acting like your grandchild targeting a grandparent and says, I'm stranded in Venezuela, grandpa. Please send me money. I need to get home. Yeah, that's what I thought you were talking about, um, like financial elder abuse. Yeah, it can happen both ways. It's so sad. That is very sad. Very, very unfortunate. The love scams are really sad because then people will obviously establish online relationships with you and then con you out of money and you get heartbreak and you lose money. So my uh, 
my girlfriend watches 90 day fiance a lot and i think there's been a couple instances of that on the show but it is yeah it is a sad very sad when people get frauded like that so we're going to talk about how to protect against fraud uh, which can be aimed at both individuals obviously kind of like how we've talked about but it can also be um targeted at businesses which would result in like data breach type stuff but first let's take a look at the numbers behind fraud these are pulled from the ftc website they track all of this stuff but in 2020 to date there's been 1.3 million fraud reports and 30 percent of those people have reported a loss for a total of 1.5 billion US dollars in losses. And the median loss is $245 that's reported. Uh, compared to 2019, there is for the whole year, 1.7 million fraud reports, 23% of those reported a loss. And there was 1.8 billion in total losses and the median loss was $314. Um, for Illinois specifically, there was there to date have been 36,000 fraud reports for $41 million in total losses and the median loss was $204. So fraud is definitely a serious issue. It's it's costing Americans billions of dollars a year. So it's something we absolutely need to be on the lookout for. And as mentioned earlier, Andrea brought off a whole long list of different types of fraud, and I'm sure we could continue on with many different forms. But along with Jake's statistics, I'm just going to highlight so far to date in 2020, the top 10 types of fraud. And I'm going to say them in order from what's most common, like the number one reported to the, the 10th most common. So that's imposter scams, telephone and mobile services, online shopping and negative reviews, internet services, prizes, sweepstakes, lotteries, travel, vacation, or timeshare plans, foreign money offers and counterfeit check scams, business and job opportunities, healthcare, and advanced payments for credit services. So I just have a clarifying question on all these statistics. I think it was for this, this data is reported up through, is it September 30th? Yeah, that's so I, that's correct. It's up through quarter three. So, the so end of be sep- September 3rd. Yeah, the end of September. So even though we're in November now, they have they take it at a, qu- a quarter at a time. So they'll let all of the reports come in through the end of the year, and then they'll put that data up on the website. So we only know through September right now. Okay. And just to look at those numbers, when you think about that through, we since these are only through September, in 2019, that was 1.7 million fraud reports. And in 2020, we're already at 1.3 million fraud reports mm-hmm. just through the end of September. Yeah, absolutely. It, it does appear that we're on track to see more instances of fraud and higher losses this year. Well, and that's only what's been reported. You have a lot of people that don't, they experience it and don't report it specifically to the FTC. They might report it to a local police department or to their financial institution, but not necessarily to the FTC. Yeah. And some people might not even report it. There's, I mean, I'm sure if you're a victim of it, I'm sure it doesn't feel good and you shouldn't, but I'm sure some people experience some shame with it and just might not report it at all. So it's a very prevalent problem. So we want to know how you can protect yourself against fraud or my, I want to protect myself against fraud. I don't know about Nikki and Jake. Do you guys want to learn how to protect yourself against fraud? That would be I would, Yeah, I would definitely like to know that. So we have already talked about it a little bit before, 
but we're, I'm going to go into more detail about how you can protect yourself against fraud. You want to guard your personal information, not just online, but also physically. And there are some unique ways to do virtual protection versus physical protection. So physically, you obviously want to keep important papers secure, like in a lockbox, either in your home or at a financial institution, some type of locked cabinet or something. If you are working on site or at a gym and you don't keep your wallet or purse on you at all times, you want to lock it up, obviously. Working for the university, there has been instances where people just put their wallet in their desk and their desk isn't in a secure location and their wallet gets stolen out of their desk. So locking it up is a good idea. You obviously want to be careful with your mail. You want to shred sensitive documents you want to limit what you carry. For instance, don't carry your social security card on you at all times. Obviously, you might need to have it when you're starting a job, need to fill out some HR paperwork, but don't make it part of your daily carry. And if someone requests your social security number, you might want to ask why they need it, how it will be used, and how it will be protected. Something that a lot of people don't think about unless they work in the medical industry is destroying prescription label labels. There's a lot of information on your prescription labels. There's also HIPAA, which helps protect health information for a reason, and it can be used to hurt you. So if you shred your or destroy your prescription labels, that will help you as well before you throw out those prescription bottles. And then you can opt out of pre-approval offers, which can help protect your identity as well, which we talked about before. And then virtually, obviously, you want to limit what you share. So don't overshare on social media, for instance. Did you guys ever hear about the Twitter that publicly shamed people that posted pictures of their debit or credit cards? I don't think I ever saw that one. Yeah, that it was popular several years ago. Uh, There, (laughs) someone got a lot of traction people who like unintentionally did it or like people purposely just like snapping a pic of their yeah people were purposely like they got excited about their new card and then they shared pictures of their card with their number on it that's not good that's really not good really not yeah pro tip (laughs) to all the listeners don't do that don't do that which is why there was a twitter that basically trolled anyone that did do that You might consider using a password manager, especially if you're someone that likes to use or has a lot of different things to log into. If you use a password manager, you can diversify the passwords that you use on different sites, which can really help you minimize the risk of one password getting you into absolutely everything. Obviously, turning on two-factor authentication, which we talked about before as well, can really help you. Read privacy policies for sites that you sign up for when you share information so that you know how your information is going to be used if you choose to share it. Even uh, though I know people don't like to do that because they're like forever long and tiny print, but at least, you know, at least skim it so you know what information you're allowing someone to have about you. Exactly. Yeah, you could definitely skim those and like most of the time the headers like for each section are going to be bolder. So you can kind of pinpoint the sections that are going to be more like just about your privacy. 
rather than all of the crazy legal information that nobody knows how to read unless you went to law school. That definitely helps. I think they also, a lot of good ones at least, will also italicize or underline important statements in it, especially around privacy. So that's good. You also want to install antivirus or anti-malware on your devices. You want to lock your devices if you're not using them. If you have a lot of data on any of your devices, you want to back up your data regularly, which can help protect against something called ransomware. Have you ever heard of ransomware? Yeah. Yeah, I've lost I've lost two hard drives in the past, not like due to any malware or fraud or anything, but it was like just an old hard drive and it went and I was very grateful to have a have a backup. And it's good to have it's good to have like an actual physical external one too, because sometimes the cloud backups don't work as well, but you can go out and get an external hard drive for some of them can be pretty affordable. Mm -hmm. My husband is a cybersecurity. I like to call him an expert. He would not agree with the expert piece, but he would say having an offsite physical hard drive would be ideal. Not everyone can do that. <laughs> but anyway, so those are a few ways, which is a lot of ways that you can help protect against fraud. Obviously, in either case, you don't want to share any personal or financial information in response to an unexpected request. And there may be other rules of thumb that you have put in place to help protect yourself. Like I track my spending on a financial aggregator, which helps a lot. Check those credit reports. Um, so we kind of mentioned this before, just when we were talking about that, we it seems like we're on track to have more fraud cases reported this year. And that could be because due to COVID-19 and the pandemic, there have been new forms of fraud that have popped up. And so we just kind of wanted to go through and highlight a few of them here on this podcast, just so you could be aware of them. I know personally, I've been getting a ton of phishing text messages since COVID-19 has started from people trying to sell me keto stuff to if I asking if I was bald and about car warranty. So I've definitely noticed the, the uptick just with me. Listeners don't necessarily know this, but Nikki is not bald. She has a beautiful head of hair. Yeah, Andrea and I can both confirm that Nikki has a full I do head not of hair. Need, I do not need but yeah, you got a for baldness. The text ones especially. I've been getting I I've been getting a lot of the scam calls uh, and texts lately, but I noticed the the one that like would ask like send you a link and ask you to like check on your package from FedEx or yep. UPS or something cuz I'm sure a lot of people are ordering things online this year and you don't want to click those links. Uh, Not at it's all. been insane how much of those that I've gotten. And then you're like, I'm afraid to click the legit ones. Right. Yeah. Because you're I like, also... is this one legit? Because this... <laughs> I've gotten this three times from a non-legit source. <laughs> Just go to your email and, and check the tracking number. Don't click yeah. on any link syntax. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I also, this one is funny. I also get the, uh, the scam calls about my car's extended warranty. I own a 2003 Honda Accord and that car is 17 <laughs> years old. Uh, it hasn't had a warranty in probably <laughs> over a decade. Years. Yeah. yeah, I've never had a warranty on it. I bought it used, so, <laughs> so they're not going to yeah, get so me with can... that one. They're not going to get me. 
so yeah, so we just wanted to kind of highlight, we've been talking just, you know, what we've experienced, but there are some very specific and organized fraud and scammers that ha- have kind of taken advantage of this pandemic. So the first one that I want to highlight is how to tell the difference between contact tracers and scammers. So contact tracers, for those of you that may not know, are usually employees of the public, the local public health department, maybe, or state or federal health department. But their job is to kind of trace where COVID-19 has hit. So, you know, that's how they're able to trace really big outbreaks that maybe, you know, okay, there was, everybody was at this one restaurant or shop or party or whatever it might be. And so they call and kind of track and let people know like, hey, you may have been exposed, you need to get tested, et cetera. Well, some people, some scammers have decided to act as contact tracers and call. So we're gonna, I'm gonna kind of highlight the differences between a legit contact tracer and then a scammer. So a legit contact tracer may ask you the following information and it's totally normal may ask you your name, your address, health information, like, are you feeling sick? Do you have a fever, et cetera? And the names of places you have been and people you have seen, because obviously that's going to help them. On the other hand, scammers take it a step further. They ask for more information than just that. They may ask for your social security number, any financial information, even your immigration status. None of those things is necessary for contact tracing. If you're on the phone with somebody and they tell you, oh, you know, I need to check our records to make sure you're Nikki Jancola, Shanks, I need your social security number. No, contact tracer will never ask you for that type of information. Also, don't click on any links or download anything that is sent to you by a supposed contact tracer. Real contact tracers will only send you texts or emails that let you know that they will be calling you. You'll never have to click on anything as they're tracing the pandemic, your name was given to somebody like I was in contact with this person and now I've tested positive for COVID-19. So they may send you a text and say, this is Shirley from, you know, your local public health department. I will be calling you regarding a close, a possible close contact with COVID-19. But they won't say, please click here to verify that you are Mickey, right? So anything that's asking you to click or download anything is a scammer. It is not a real contact tracer. And then the other thing is real tracers will never ask you for money. You do not need to pay to have to to talk to somebody from the public health department. There should be no fees involved, nothing like that. If as soon as they say that you owe them money, hang up. I, when we were researching this podcast, I kind of thought that this was really important because it's something that people may not, first of all, contact tracers in general are new, right? I mean, they're not new to the public health sphere, but they're new in terms of us as citizens possibly having contact with a contact tracer. A year ago, would did any of us even really know what that meant? Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> so because it's so new, it is ripe for fraud. And for those listeners that may be college or university students, um, due to COVID-19, I know that some of the universities have their own type of tracing system for COVID. So it's really important that you guys know what is legit for your campus. 
Maybe it's a phone call. Maybe it's through an app. Maybe it's through an email. But just make sure you know what those protocols are so that way, if anything out of the ordinary happens, then you can be like, this is most likely a scammer, not real. So other things that scammers have been taking advantage of, trying to sell products to treat or prevent COVID-19. There is no proof that any of these work. They are just saying that they do to try to get some money. There are also ads for at-home COVID test kits. None of these are FDA approved yet, and they are not necessarily accurate. So I would save your money, particularly if you think, you know, if you're trying to go, I know certain people for work may have to prove like, oh, you have a, I have a COVID negative test, et cetera. Those at-home tests are not going to be accepted for <laughs> to prove that you are COVID negative. And then hang up on robocalls. They are pitching everything from work at home schemes to low priced insurance to anything that you could imagine because they know that people are home and that they are calling more and more likely to pick up their phones. So if you hear a robocall, just hang up like Jake does when they call about his car warranty. Yo, Honda. <laughs> I was going to say one more thing on the the people, you know, trying to sell stuff that treats or prevents COVID too. That's not like necessarily, you might not get a phone call about that. Sometimes like it can come from an internet personality. There's some, I think, pretty radical groups on, on online that, that sell those kinds of things. So just be aware of these kinds of people that are trying to make money off of a pandemic. They're a little bit of snake oil sales people. Definitely. I mean, it's it's not necessarily just text or a phone call. It could be click on this link, you know, or there's even advertisements. Like I've seen advertisements come through on like when I'm just on the internet or like Facebook or whatever I might be on for those at home COVID-19 test kits. So like people are spending the money to, to target to try to get you to spend your money. So you want to be on the lookout for emails claiming to be the World Health Organization or the Center for Disease Control. Typically, these people will not be emailing you. So if they are selling some of the snake oil that Jake pointed out, you want to be wary. Obviously, with any type of email, don't click on a link that you don't know where it goes. If it looks like it's from your bank or credit union and asks you to click a link, rather than clicking the link, go directly to your financial institution site rather than going down a rabbit hole that might be introducing you to fraud. You also want to be careful about donations. There are a lot of really valuable causes to contribute to this year, but definitely vet the sources of those charitable organizations to make sure that the money that you want to go to a cause is actually going to that cause. You also want to watch out for unemployment benefit fraud. That has been happening much more recently. My mom actually got a letter from the state of Maryland that someone tried to claim unemployment in that state under her name. She's never been to Maryland, so that's obviously fraud. <laughs> I have a, a very good friend of mine who actually works for the state of Illinois and her HR department called her to let her know that somebody had just tried to file an unemployment claim in her name. Clearly her HR department knows that she still works there so they could handle that for her. But 
it's definitely happening. Yeah, there was a mass mail that went out earlier this week to all University of Illinois system employees about unemployment fraud specifically. So it's happening everywhere. At least there are HR departments that are recognizing there is a trend and letting their employees know how to combat that. But I'm sure, especially with smaller organizations or smaller businesses or people that may already be on unemployment and there's claims trying to be made in other states, like in the case of my mom, (laughs) that they may not know how to watch for that. So be on the lookout for unemployment. Yeah, I was going to say as well, I know even here in Illinois, the Department of Employment Security, IDES, had reached out to our division to, they wanted us to get in touch with our banking and financial institutions just to let them know to be on the lookout for unemployment fraud, because I think they've, they've definitely seen an uptick with the uh, extended unemployment benefits that have gone out to people this year. Jake, you might know this. Do you think that more organizations are putting red flag rules in place that are specific to kind of COVID-19 stuff? Uh, I can't say that, like, I know of any specific organizations that have, like, altered their reporting protocols. I think all of that is pretty set in stone already. But I, I definitely know just from, like, our communication within our division that, like, financial institutions certainly are more on the lookout this year um, just because there's so many new avenues for people to try and commit fraud, whether it's, you know, through unemployment benefits, through tax schemes, through the payment protection, payment protection program, program, the PPP loans. There's just a lot of things that they have to look out for. So they, I think the financial institutions definitely have their antennas up, so to speak. And for those of you that don't know, uh, the red flag rules was issued in 2007 under Section 114 of the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act of 2003. So it was an amendment to the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and it requires businesses to have processes in place to recognize potential fraud. Yeah, I'm not aware that those have changed at all this year. So I can't say for sure one way or the other. I don't, yeah, I don't want to misspeak on that. I just was curious since you do so much reporting. (laughs) Not that, not that kind, but thanks for the the question. Thanks for humoring me. There's some more stuff we want to highlight to point out about the COVID-19 frauds as well. One thing that's going around are, is like clinical trial fraud. So these are a real thing. Uh, Companies are working on creating vaccines and treatments for COVID-19 virus. And there are real ones out there, but there's also fake ones out there. Um, So you have to be on the lookout for that. This is kind of similar to what Nikki was talking about earlier. You know, you want to be cautious. You want to try to vet the real ones versus the fake ones. They are going to ask you certain things about your information. Um, You know, they're going to want to track your health background, your name, your address, things like that for their trial, the real ones are at least. But again, they're not going to ask you for money. So never go with anything that is asking you to pay. You don't want to give out your financial information. So do your research first. Don't give out your social security number. And these trials do pay people. So the FTC says on average that, you know, they might pay people from anywhere from 1000 to even $2,500. So if it's something you're interested in, it can be an avenue for you to make some money. But typically, they're not going to ask you for direct deposit. They'll find another way 
to pay you. So be very wary of giving out your social security number or any other financial information like direct deposit accounts because you get that out to a scammer, then they have direct access to all your finances. There's another one that I think people have probably heard more of about COVID mask exemption cards. These are fake. So you might hear like people That's go to stores. Are you serious, Jake? Yeah. This so the first time I've heard of it. So yeah, there, there are people that may not want to wear mask, even though it's what the CDC has, has recommended and mask keeps you, people safe, keep yourself safe and it keeps others around you safe as well. So it is very important to wear your mask. Uh, but some people will have these cards. They go into a business and the business says, hey, you can't come in here without a mask. They say, oh, I have this card that exempts me from wearing a mask due to a disease or a disability that I have. Those are fake, 100% fake. There are no government issued mask exemption cards. So if you see these in the wild, you don't have to listen to those people. <laughs> They're clearly the trying only, to I think get around the, the mask thing, requirements and recommendations. The only, the only thing I've heard that some very, 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 very few people actually can carry, like it's like a note from their doctor, but there's right. nothing from the government that's like, yes, you don't have to wear this mask, but everyone else does. Yeah, I Are suppose a note from a doctor that? would maybe suffice, but straight from the FTC website, it says, the fact is these cards aren't issued or endorsed by the Department of Justice or any other federal agency. DOJ urges the public not to rely on the information contained in these postings and to visit the americansdisability.gov, ada.gov for information issued by that agency. Why would it even be the Department of Justice anyway? It would have to be ADA or like Department of Human Services. I don't know the logic behind the Department of Justice, but I, I, the FTC says that these a lot of these cards will have the insignia or the seal of, of DOJ on them, which is even more confusing. But as someone who used to work in the service industry and has done customer service before, these, things, these types of things are a huge hassle to deal with if you're a waiter at a restaurant or if you work in retail, maybe. And it's really putting the burden on those employees to have to deal with this. So I would emphatically ask people not to use them and to be wary, maybe speak up if you see somebody voting, somebody who is, and just say, hey, those, you know, the government isn't issuing those. Plus, you don't want to pay for something that isn't going to help you in any way do anything. Yeah, absolutely. There's no, there's no legal backing behind these types of things. So there's really no use to them. And if you see one and you think you might want to have that, it's not worth getting. Another one of these is also online shopping. There's shady sellers out there that are trying to give the illusion of selling products that are in high demand. It might be N95 mask, it might be disinfectant wipes or sprays or hand sanitizer. I'm um, sure it was toilet paper back from Yeah, toilet paper. You know, I remember seeing spring. I remember seeing the news headlines, people selling toilet paper on Amazon for thousands of dollars. You have to you have to be careful of that, especially when if there's panic and things can be scarce, you know, people will jump to that and try to take advantage of it. So just be very careful of who you're purchasing products from. Typically, I would recommend going with a company that you know, whether it's a large corporation that you're familiar with, you know, your Walmarts your Myers, your, your typical grocery stores, or 
something verified on Amazon or any other online retailer. Um, if you think you see a good deal on some site you've never heard of or some distributor that, that you've never heard of, or if you get to it through like a pop-up ad or something like that, just be very wary of that. I would, I would certainly stay away from that because there's a good chance that they could be people who are trying to get you to pay for products that don't ever intend to sell them to you. But if you do buy products and they never come to you, we want to recommend purchasing th those things with a credit card. As uh, Andrea talked about on our last episode of credit, credit cards have certain legal protections that can save you if you purchase something and it doesn't actually end up getting to you. So you can be reimbursed for those purchases by your credit card company because of those legal protections. And also- Again. If you buy a mask and they send you a blender, you can't cover your face with a blender. Very true, Andrea. Did somebody send you like a blender in the past when you no, ordered I something just, else? I really just like to use that example now. The the bagel you can only like. You want a bagel? I like bagels, right? Yeah. You can't toast your bagel in a blender. I've just always used that. I, you know, analogy when I've explained the benefits of a credit card. So I feel like the podcast listeners need to hear that. We will stick with that. It's your favorite analogy. On this podcast. It's, yeah. it, I love bagels. You guys don't know how much I love bagels. That's our promise to the listeners is we will use that analogy frequently on this <laughs> Thank podcast. You. Thank you. Uh, but I was going to say one more thing on that. Uh, when you do buy things online, especially this year, I know it can be tempting to like lose track of the documents, but like try to make sure you get like an order form or a receipt. A lot of times when you buy things though, like companies will immediately send you that email to confirm your purchase right after. You wanna make sure you hold on to that. Don't just delete that from your email inbox or anything like that. And if you don't get one of those, definitely be wary and try to follow up with that purchase. And if you made it with a credit card, then you'll have those legal protections there as well. And there's another one that we want to highlight here as well. Some people have been trying to highlight free COVID-19 money on WhatsApp and Facebook. Again, this is a, a thing where you do not want to click on links. Nobody's giving out free money, so to speak, during this pandemic that isn't a government-backed entity. And if you've already received your stimulus check, there is no further... Currently, there's no further stimulus checks coming. If you haven't already received your stimulus check, you're going to want to go through a government entity website to receive that, not through some link that someone may send you on WhatsApp or Facebook. If that does happen to you, definitely don't click on the link. You want to delete the message and don't share it with anybody. A lot of times if a hacker or somebody trying to commit fraud gets a hold of one Facebook account, if, the, if someone falls victim, they then might blast that message out to all of that person's family and friends on Facebook or their other social media. And it can kind of spread like wildfire if, if people don't realize that it's a, it's a spam attack. And then also, if you do get a suspicious message from someone that you know, don't click on the link again, but let that person know that you're suspecting that they have been hacked and someone is trying to commit fraud through their account. So they can either deactivate it or change their password to get that person out of there before any more harm is done. Really, I mean, this is nothing new to scammers. This year has probably prevented them some interesting opportunities in their view, but scammers are always changing tactics. 
but you can check the FTC website, ftc.gov backslash coronavirus to stay up to date on all the latest tactics that these scammers are using. To give you an idea of the amount of damage these COVID-19 scammers have done so far, we kind of wanted to take a look at the numbers. So these numbers are on the FTC website and they are from, the data is from January 1st to November 12th. Currently, there's been 249,219 overall reports, and this is just the FTC COVID-19 report. Nearly 250,000 scams, fraud, alert, reported to the FTC. For a total of nearly 183 million total fraud loss, and the median fraud loss is $320. And that's just for coronavirus themed scams. Correct. Um, They actually have a really interesting graph on this section of the website too. And you can actually see like January 1st through March, it's like at zero K and then March hits and then it's up and down all it spiked because that was really when the pandemic hit, when these people started coming up with these scams. It's interactive yeah, it's, by state. This is a good dashboard. Yes, there yeah, is there's, almost so, 3,846 fraud claims for COVID-19 to date in Illinois. Yeah, I was so. going to say too, like this year, especially, we've, we've said this on prior podcasts, but just the importance this year in particular of like making sure you're tracking your accounts and being extra careful just because so much of what's going on this year is like so new to so many people. I've been sure that most people have never lived through a global pandemic before and all these new things that the government is doing and all this aid that's going out to people is all new to people. So they don't know what to expect. You know, they don't, it's maybe harder to recognize if something is out of the ordinary or something is fishy. So that's why it's just so important to be extra alert and extra cautious this year because you never know Obviously, people are trying to take advantage of this very difficult time for people is what these scammers are doing, but you just have to be extra careful. Make sure you protect yourself from attempts of scams. I think coronavirus scams have been added to my list of the saddest scams. Yeah. Grandpa scams, love scams, coronavirus scams. Yeah, it's very unfortunate that so many people are struggling right now and there's people out there trying to take advantage of it. It's not good, but that's why we wanted to highlight it for people today and during Fraud Awareness Week so that people are aware of this and they can better protect themselves. Exactly. And I think that, you know, as Jake mentioned, scammers are always changing and trying to up their game. So it's important at this moment in time that we are recording the podcast, this is what the FTC is is telling us are the most likely COVID-19 scams. Two months from now, it could be something new. So, you know, you could check the FTC website, like we said, but also just being more cautious is important. I absolutely agree. So we've gone over how many different ways that people can be scammed out of money, their information, all kinds of stuff. But what do you do if you've become a victim of fraud? And where should you report it? Well, you Once you recognize that you are a victim of fraud or identity theft, you want to act as fast as you can to limit the damages. The longer you wait, typically, the costlier it gets. 
You can go to reportfraud.ftc.gov, for instance, to kind of get a checklist of what to do and report FTC-related fraud cases. You can also place an initial fraud alert on any credit reports, especially if it is financial-related and you want to order your credit reports. And again, you go to annualcreditreport.com. Right now through April 2021, Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion are provided weekly free credit reports, not just once every 12 months, but every week until April 2021. You want to make sure if you have fraudulent charges or unauthorized withdrawals on your bank account to contact your financial institution. Same thing if it's a credit card and you're recognizing unauthorized charges, you want to contact your credit card company as soon as possible. You can also, I said an initial fraud alert earlier, but you could also place a credit freeze as well on your credit reports. The FTC identifies the differences between credit report freeze and a fraud alert. So with fraud alerts, the business must verify your identity before issuing new credit. So if you're seeking out credit, they got to verify your identity. You can also look at extended fraud alerts that can last seven years, and they're only available to confirmed identity theft victims. Credit freezes, on the other hand, stops all access to your credit report until you lift the freeze yourself. And a freeze is, a credit freeze is available to anyone, whether or not you have been a victim of identity theft. So that can also be a preventative measure that a lot of people don't talk about. When the, was it Equifax breach? I always confuse Experian and Equifax. I think it was Equifax. So it, the, during the Equifax breach, a lot of people chose to start freezing their credit. And then the big thing is remembering to unfreeze it when you're seeking out new credit. So those are a couple ways to deal with identity theft or scams when you have become a victim. Some people struggle to recover from identity theft and it can take a long time to do so depending on the depth of how bad that identity theft is. Yeah, that's all great advice, Andrea. And we've said it before here too, but there are a lot of government resources out there if you've been a victim of identity theft or any type of fraud. So just make sure you go check those out at the FTC website. As, as mentioned, we have talked on previous podcasts about fraud and how to protect yourself. Uh, in the spirit of International Fraud Week, we want to encourage you to check out a few episodes in case you missed them. On episode three, we talked about fintech and addressed some of the major data breaches and basic online security, also like types of phishing and other scams. Uh, in episode four, we talked about a specific type of fraud, identity theft, so if you haven't checked out either, this week would be a perfect time to do so. Thank you so much for joining us today for this special podcast during International Fraud Awareness Week. We urge you always, but especially this week, to keep your eyes and ears peeled for fraud and scams. And don't be afraid to report what you see. Next time, we're going to talk about predatory lending. We will have a special guest on, Katie Liss from IDFPR, which is a colleague of Nikki and Jake's to discuss this very important topic. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play and share with your family and friends. Thanks for joining us.